This morning we conclude our Exodus series with the final verses of Exodus from chapter 40, verses 17 through 38. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark. and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, And fire was in it by night, in sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And please join with me in prayer. Father, uh, you have brought us through this journey in this book of Exodus that you've given us. Uh, You have spoken to us in in many different ways. And knowing that you are a God of limitless grace, we once again ask for you to speak to us. We ask that in your word you would bless us, that you would shape us, that you would draw us to you. That more and more we would become your redeemed people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I already alluded to, uh, we right now come to the end of our series on Exodus. And also in this morning, we are at the end of Advent tonight. We move kind of from Advent to Christmas itself with our our Christmas Eve service. 
And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do as we kind of draw this series to a close is kind of to step back and to consider really the book of Exodus as a whole. We'll touch on the passage that I just read, but we're going to be looking at really what we see throughout and asking ourselves, what is it that God is teaching us? And at the same time, I'm hoping that as we do this, as we consider Exodus together, it will lead us to the end of Advent. It will help us to see why Christ needed to come. And there's so many different things that we could think about with, with Exodus. There's so many themes that it's teaching us. But here's what I'd like us to see this morning, that Exodus and this story of redemption is a story that has a lot to do with leadership. What Exodus teaches us is that we, you and I, the whole world, need a leader. And more specifically, we need that leader to be God. We need a leader, and we need that leader to be God. And I want to help you to see this in Exodus by looking at three things. How Exodus identifies for us a need and identifies for us a problem and it also shows us a solution. So first, the need. The need, as I've already said, is this need that we have for God to be our leader. You know, it's interesting to me, as I've been trying to understand kind of what's going on in our cultural moment, there seems to be so much, so much of an emphasis on politics. You can, you can almost not escape it. And, and I wonder if behind this, this passion for politics, either you're really for or you're really against or you're feeling in despair one or the other, whether there is underlying this awareness that we need a leader. I mean, there's an irony in this because we're probably in a more individualistic time than ever where, where we're told that you should just do what you want, follow your own instincts as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But yet, even as we say that, there seems to be this, this deep awareness that even despite our desire to be individuals, we need to figure out a way to work together. We need to come together if we are going to be a society that is just, if we are going to be able to face the challenges that are before us that seem to be just kind of looming, we need to be united. And the only way that that can happen is, is through leadership. We, we have deep disagreements in our country about what that leadership looks like, but I think we're united at least in the awareness that we need someone, some sort of leadership to direct us that we might work together. Because that's the only way a society can survive, right? Societies need to work together, and that can only happen when you have a good leader. That's hardly new. That's something that, that nations have known from generation upon generation, and it's certainly something that we see in Exodus. There is a deep awareness in the book of Exodus of people needing a leader. But what Exodus really underlines is the fact that that leader needs to be God. See, sometimes when people think of the story of Exodus, we think just of the fact that God's people are rescued out of slavery. We want to say that redemption is much bigger than that in the perspective of Exodus. Redemption is not just about escaping suffering. Redemption is about being brought under God's leadership, being brought under God's rule. To understand Exodus, we need to understand that the whole story of Exodus is a story about leadership. If you think about it, it starts with a terrible leader, with Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is someone who claims Israel as his own, and his only desire is to use them, to abuse them for his own ends. He is one kind of leader. 
And when Moses comes to rescue or through God comes to rescue, what does rescue look like? God is saying through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. I am going to take my people out of this bad leadership so that I can be their king. And then later on when you come to the failure that we looked at last week, what is it that the people are asking for? When they're impatient because God's people, because Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai and they don't know what's happening, they ask Aaron, bring us a God who will go for us and lead before us. They're saying, we need a leader and we don't know where ours is. It's once again, when they're trying to get this, when this golden calf is built, it is a desire for a leader. And so throughout Exodus, you see really this, this kind of forking path. There are different leaders that one can have or that one can choose. You can have God or you can have an alternative to God. And when it's an alternative to God, things never work out well. With Pharaoh, we've already mentioned, what does Pharaoh do? He just, he oppresses, he destroys. It's tyrannical. It's, he's a tyrant. He, he is saying, I am the one who owns the people, and he is a tyrant. He destroys the people. And then when we get to the golden calf, the other alternative, what's going on there? It's not just that they're worshiping a cow. In some ways, this is the leadership of their own making. They don't like the way that God is, so they're saying, let's do a God on our own terms. Let's make something that makes sense to us. It's the God that they want who can do, allow them to do whatever they want to do. Really, this golden calf moment is them being the ones in charge. Now, what do we see happening then? We see them getting into these excesses. The Bible seems to describe dancing and partying and revelry so extreme that it says the other nations look around and see them and mock them. There's foolishness that comes when, when they seek this God of their own making, really being able to follow their own desires. And what I think Exodus is trying to teach us in, in this, when we see these two alternatives to God, is that whenever someone other than God is our leader, it will either end in tyranny or it will end in foolishness. So, so when we say to something other than God, your will be done, we allow that to become the tyrant in our lives. It doesn't have to just be a political figure like, like Pharaoh, or we can think of other figures who thought that they have possession of people, whether it's Stalin or Pol Pot or whomever. It can even be something as simple as, as even within our own lives, as, as something like success or relationships or health. I mean, haven't we seen people who wear themselves out to the point of utter exhaustion to get ahead at work or to get every A that they need to in school? Or, or, or don't you know people who are using every minute of their day to, to bring their children to everything that they think their kid needs and yet they still beat themselves up for not being the perfect parent? Or haven't we seen people who almost kill themselves to keep themselves looking young even as they're aging? Those are all forms of tyranny. When we give ourselves to a leader other than God, it's tyranny. Or if we give ourselves to our own desires and say, my heart is the one in charge, it's foolishness. 
I mean, that is the spirit of our day. Listen to your heart. Do what it says. But, but we know where that can take people, don't we? We have seen, many of us, relationships, families that are torn apart because one of the spouses say, I am going to follow what makes me happy, and what makes me happy is having an affair. Or we know the destructiveness of addictions. See, when we follow a leader other than God, it's tyranny, it's foolishness, we lose ourselves. Now, the irony of this is we, I think, have a hard time with the idea sometimes of allowing God to be a ruler, of saying your will be done to God because we are afraid that what God is going to take us to is something that's different from ourselves, where we will lose ourselves. But the reality is that God's rule is the only one where we find ourselves. Because God's leadership, unlike anyone else, is a leadership that comes from a place purely of love. God does not need anything from you or from me. His commands to us are never self-motivated. He is perfectly content. His, His commands are because he loves us. And what's more, he knows you more deeply than anyone else, including yourself. So every word God speaks, every command he gives is a calling us into ourselves, as an inviting us into wholeness. We are only made whole, we are only made complete when we say your will be done to God and and allow him to change us. Uh, Let me just use a really kind of pedestrian example to try to explain kind of what I'm meaning here. So I have found for myself in the morning, and maybe some of you feel like that, that the cell phone is a tyrant in my life. Do, we know, do you know this feeling? Like, you know, I wake up, and if I have the cell phone near me, I see the emails that I'm supposed to have, and I suddenly feel like I need to respond to that, or there might be texts that are just kind of waiting. And even if there aren't, then I probably feel like I should check the news because I want to make sure that I'm current with the events. And oh, while I'm at it, I probably should check Twitter. And it's one thing after another after another, and 45 minutes later, I am a slave to my cell phone. And I'll tell you, there's nothing about that in my experience that has made me more who I am. There's nothing that has been more satisfying about that. There hasn't. It's just, it's tyranny. Now, sometimes when I don't allow the cell phone to kind of invade, and I do what I'm actually wanting to do in the morning, and I'm I'm just spending some time trying to read scripture, not allowing the distractions too much to invade, trying to spend some time in prayer, when I'm able to just seek to listen to God, There's something about how he shapes me in those moments that that kind of open up the world to me in a different way. I begin to remember again who I am, that I'm his child, that I'm loved. I begin to realize that I'm not dreading the day, that God is at work in it. I I am brought more into myself. See, See, that's how God's rule works. It's always loving. It always understands us best. When God is our leader, it makes us whole. It brings us into ourselves the way that we were designed to be. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we rest in God. And this is what he's talking about. And this is what Exodus is about. The very end of Exodus, as we'll come to later, when God comes and dwells with his people, that's not just about being seen by his people so they can know he's real. That's about God coming to be the king, the ruler, the leader who is now leading his people into joy. Because this world, each of us, we need a leader 
And we need that leader to be God. That's the only leadership that will ever lead us to where we need. But that's the need. There's also a problem that we see in Exodus. And the problem is that even though that is the only way that we can be fully human, there's a real question of whether or not this is even possible. Is it even possible to have God as our leader? And Exodus raises that question by showing us what Israel does again and again. There seems to be something at the very heart of the people of Israel that is seeking to sabotage, seeking to undermine any relationship with God where he is their leader. We first see that in you know, the early chapters, right, when Moses comes and says, God is saying that he's going to rescue you, and then Pharaoh does not respond well. And Israel, what they do is they say, Moses, we don't want to hear you anymore. We don't want to hear about God. We belong to Pharaoh. We're just going to follow him. He's, they're saying, we don't want God as our leader. You get a few chapters later, God sent these amazing 10 plagues, brought them out of the Red Sea. They're in the desert, and they don't have any food. And they're like, man, we wish we had died back there. We would rather have death as our master than God. And then God gives manna and provides and brings them, brings them to the mountain. And do you remember what we, what we saw a few weeks ago? There is this pledging where God says, I will be your God. I will lead you. I will love you. And there's promises made. And, and God's people respond saying, whatever you say we will do, we will be your people. There are sacrifices. And there's even a feast celebrating this relationship. And then... Like, the, the, the embers of the fire have barely burnt out. The coals are still warm while Moses is on the top. And what did the people do? Saying, well, we don't know what happened to this God. We want a cow. There is something deeply, deeply wrong with his people. It's not just some accident where they make one oopsie mistake. This is something that goes to the heart of who they are. They are saying at their very core, we do not want God as our leader. And just think of what this moment does to this relationship. One commentator said, the golden calf incident is essentially akin to the wedding day with the feasting and the joy and the promises made, and then on the wedding night, one of the spouses cheating on the other. That's what happens. Israel cheats on God in the very the very month that they have made these beautiful promises to each other. And adultery is a pretty good analogy. In fact, the Bible uses it repeatedly, and it raises the question, what's going to happen to this relationship? I mean, we know that whenever there's a marriage where one person has cheated, there's the question of, is this marriage even going to continue? And that's the question here. Can God continue to be a God of a people who have been so utterly unfaithful to him. And what should disturb us about this is the fact that Israel is not like some really strange breed of humanity. They're just human beings. And they reflect us. I've had, I think, at least a half dozen conversations with people over the years who have spoken about this very thing, about how it seems like, at first, it seems like Israel, they are so crazy. Why do they keep on forgetting God and doing that? Until you've lived for a few years as a Christian, you realize, oh, that's exactly the way I am. Isn't it? God shows his kindness, and yet, in certain moments, we choose Pharaoh, or we choose the cow. 
We choose the cell phone. We choose to give ourselves to success. We choose again and again to give ourselves to leaders other than the God who loves us. We cheat on our God. And the question is, what happens to the relationship because of that? And that question really is kind of underlined at a certain point when we get into Exodus. There is this one moment where Moses himself is coming down from the mountain. And he's heard about the golden calf, but he hasn't seen it. And he has these two tablets in his hand. The tablets that are basically the contract that God has written saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he's bringing it down as a record of this new relationship. And he sees what the people are doing and he throws the tablets down, saying, this relationship is broken. It's over. And after he speaks with the people, he eventually says, I'm going to go back up and I'm going to ask God and perhaps... God will forgive. There is no certainty on Moses' part about what God is going to do. There is a real question in this moment. Is this relationship going to continue? Is it even possible for a people who are so pathologically opposed to having God as the leader to actually having this relationship? Is it possible for God's people to be redeemed because they need him as their leader, but they keep on rejecting him? And don't we feel that as well? When we have failed God, don't we feel the weight, the burden of that? Is it, can God possibly forgive me? We, we feel that weight. So we see the need. We need God as our leader. And we see the problem that we, humanity, at our hearts there is something that is fundamentally opposed to having God as our leader. But we also see a solution. You know, one of the most beautiful things about the final chapters of Exodus is something that it's easy to miss if you're just kind of like looking at it without following the whole story in one sitting. When you get to chapter 35, it's coming right after this traumatic event, this terrible thing of the golden calf, of Israel completely giving themselves up to something other than God, of all of the, the question of what's going to happen, and you get to chapter 35, and it's like none of that's happened. Before the golden calf, God was saying, here's how you make the tabernacle, here's the instructions. Right in chapter 35, then you see Israel, no longer this faithless people, but this devoted people giving all of their, their treasures to donate to make the tabernacle being built. And we see God giving the instructions, okay, here's how you do it, here's how you build the next part of the tabernacle, the next part. And it's like nothing has happened to change their relationship. And so when you read chapter 35, if you haven't looked carefully, you wonder, what, what is going on? We just saw something terrible take place, and now it's like there is, there is nothing. Given the terribleness of Israel's sin, given their rejection of God as a leader, how is this now right back on the course that it was where God is planning to live amongst his people? And the answer is that God, in response to Israel's sin, does two things. He humbles his people, and he forgives them. Now, for the people of God to truly have God as their king, they need to be brought to a place of reality that they have never been to before. They need to recognize what it means that they are a dependent people, that God is their God, 
They need to recognize just how terrible this sin is and what faithfulness demands. And that means they're going to have to suffer. And that's what we see in chapters 33 and 34. There are, there are punishments that bring grief and pain. There are warnings that bring fear and awareness that they are this close to losing God as their king. And as a result, we see Israel mourning. We see them brought low. We see them brought to a place that they don't seem to have been before. They are being humbled because that's what needs to happen. They have to be humbled for them to be made whole, for them to have God as their king. And I want to suggest to you that's always how God works. You know, one of the great challenges that we have as we're following Christ throughout our life is we know that God loves us, we know that we're told that God loves us, and yet we experience some pretty awful things. We experience our own failure. We experience deep grief. And the Bible doesn't give us the answer for why this always happens. It really doesn't. But it says sometimes what's taking place is God is humbling you. It's not God kind of taking something out on you and trying to make you suffer. It is God in love bringing you to the place that you need to be. Because you and I cannot be made whole until we are brought low. We need to surrender our pride. We need to surrender our self-centeredness. We only become who we truly are the more that we say, God, you are my king, you are my leader, and I will follow you. I'm reminded of a prayer that at least, according to tradition, was found in the pocket of a Civil War soldier. He says, I ask God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health, that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity, that I might do better things. I asked for riches, that I might be happy. I was given poverty, that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness, that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. And I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. When God humbles us, it is out of love. It is what we need. We can only be made whole when we're brought low. And we see that here. But it is not only that God humbles his people, he forgives them as well. You know, there's this time when Moses comes up and he's praying as he said he would for his people and after an ongoing conversation that seems complicated at times, the ultimate answer is God saying, yes, yes, I will forgive this people. I will continue to be their king and go with them. And what's so striking to me is that that yes doesn't have an asterisk. It's not like right after they're kind of like in the, the sin penalty box. God goes right back to the very relationship that had existed beforehand as if nothing had ever happened. Which when you think about what they did, cheating on God is utterly remarkable. I mean, have you ever done 
done something or said something that hurt someone else, and there's no fixing it, and you would give in that moment anything that you could to just go back in time and to undo it. It's a horrible feeling. Well, this is exactly what seems to have happened here. Israel has done something terrible. And when God says, I will forgive, he's not saying, I'm going to be nice to you, but you're going to know deep down that I'm still pretty unhappy, and so we're going to kind of be at arm's length from each other. He's not saying, okay, I'll forgive for right now, but anytime you do something like this again, I'll keep on bringing this up, and you'll never be able to let go of this. That's not how God forgives. When God forgives, it is completely behind him. It is completely done. There, of course, are consequences with, with our sin, but from God's perspective, in terms of his relationship with us, it is, if, as it, it is as if it has never happened. Let me ask you, do you know that about God's forgiveness? We, each of us, carry sometimes this burden of the awareness of how we have failed. And it can almost sometimes seem selfish to try to believe in the possibility of real forgiveness. And I want to tell you that that is a mistake. That when you confess your sins and God says they are forgiven, they are completely forgiven. Yes, there are still consequences, but God is not angry. It is done. It is behind you. There is complete restoration. That's the way that God forgives. And so we see when we get to the passage that I read at the very end of Exodus, we see complete restoration. Israel has been humbled. They are now devoted, at least for a time, and God has forgiven. And what happens? The tabernacle is erected. Moses does everything exactly as the Lord commands. And then God himself comes to dwell among his people. And now he is going to be their leader. Whenever he leads them, he goes ahead of them and they follow. Whenever he doesn't, they stay. He is their king and he is leading them to the promised land. He is leading them into joy and to wholeness. And what we're meant to understand in the book of Exodus is that God is so intent on redeeming his people and bringing them into what they were created to be that nothing can stand in his way. Pharaoh can't stand in his way. All of the army of Egypt can't stand in his way. Even our own sinfulness cannot stand in the way of God's purpose to redeem his people. And so he will. Now, if we kind of continue beyond Exodus, we realize that this humbling of Israel still has kind of only a temporary effect, and they they once again turn away from God. And even as God comes to draw near to his people, there still needs to be kind of this buffer because God's holiness and and the sinfulness that's pervasive in Israel continues. And so God will live among them, but there's going to be kind of this this barrier. And, And what that is showing us is that there is going to need to be something more. There's going to be a, a need for a deeper humbling, a humbling that goes so deep, it is like a death a death of pride, a death of self-centeredness, a death of the old person. And that forgiveness is going to need to go even deeper. 
that the cleansing is going to need to go deeper so that we are so cleansed of our sins that, that people can somehow draw into God's presence boldly and without fear. God is going to have to do something even greater than Sinai itself to redeem his people. And that is, of course, what leads us to Advent. That's what leads us to Jesus. You know, many, many centuries later, Scripture speaks of a moment in time when an angel appears to this godly, confused man who doesn't know what to do about his pregnant fiance. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God will do whatever it takes. No, no force, no sin, no evil, no death, not even our own failure will stand in the way of God redeeming his people for himself and bringing them into the fullness of salvation. So right now, before us is the table, and we are invited by our Lord Jesus, by Emmanuel, to draw near. And as we come to this table, we are humbled because we're reminded of what Christ had to do to bring us to the point of salvation. And as we eat and we drink, our Lord is proclaiming that the forgiveness is utterly complete. And so in the knowledge of that, that our Lord God invites us to eat and drink with him, I invite you now even to prepare your hearts in confession and acknowledgement that the Lord is our King And then I will lead us in prayer in a moment. So let's confess together before God. Lord God, ruler of the universe, our God, you know how we have failed you. Even this week, how we have turned against you. How we have sought to follow our own instincts, or we have given ourselves to something else that we have seen for a moment is more important to you. Lord, we confess our sinfulness and we grieve over it. It is unfathomable to us that you would know these things about us and yet you would give your son and that your son would lay down his life for us. 
Father, we will never understand what it means that your son became one of us, that your son died for us. But even though we don't understand it, we desire to take hold of that reality. Lord, please, as we are humbled, help us, even now as we come to the table, to understand the truth that through Christ we are forgiven, that we are your people, and that you are our king. And we ask that even as you nourish us through this, that you would enable us more and more to be your faithful people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Galatians. We're reminded that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the family of God and your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.